This is the East Drama Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. This is Colonel Matt Martin from Baghdad, Iraq. And hello, this is Jennifer Gurney, also in Baghdad, Iraq. And also a colonel. And also a colonel. <laughs> and we're here to uh, give you guys the introduction to the uh, this episode of Case Records of the Joint Trauma System. This was recorded on August 29th, 2017 at the Military Health, Health Sciences Research Symposium in Florida. Uh, one thing that's unique about this meeting is that there's more than just surgeons at this meeting. There's many people from research and logistics and uh, nursing care who uh, support combat casualty care along the continuum. And before we get started with this uh, podcast, uh, Colonel Martin is going to describe the continuum of care on the battlefield to give everybody an idea of some of the challenges that we have taking care of these patients. Yeah, and so just, just as a primer to the discussion you're about to hear, military we love acronyms we love numbers uh, and just so everybody understands uh, what people are referring to uh, the, the process and continuum of care for an injured service member uh, on the battlefield uh, goes through a system called the echelons or roles of care and so you often hear it referred to as echelon or role and a number uh, role one through role five uh, and that just starts from the point of injury and follows that injured soldier back uh, all the way through their evacuation back to the continental United States. Um, so role one care would be uh, immediately at the point of injury, typically, typically done by uh, other soldiers or medics. Uh, would also include uh, forward care by a medical treatment facility that does not have surgical capabilities. So this would be called a battalion aid station or a Charlie Med. Um, they would then proceed to a roll two. And roll two facility is really the first point where there is a surgical capability. Uh, and you'll often hear uh, FST uh, or forward surgical team, and, and that's, at least for the Army, the typical roll two unit. And that's a small 10 to 20 person element uh, that can perform basic damage control surgery uh, as close to the point of injury as possible. Uh, from there, the injured service member will usually progress to roll three facility. Uh, you'll often heard that called a cash or a combat support hospital, and that is more of a robust full hospital. It has surgical capability, it has CAT scan imaging, it has subspecialty uh, availability, it has uh, pretty robust patient holding and intensive carrying capability. And for, for anybody who used to watch the show MASH, uh, it, it's similar to a MASH. In fact, the MASH has evolved now into caches. Uh, and the other services have uh, somewhat different names, but the role three generally means a more robust facility. And I think, you know, one thing to understand as you listen to uh, the next case is that the role two capability can be really quite austere. You certainly don't have a CAT scanner. Uh, you might not even have x-ray. Usually you'll have ultrasound. These teams uh, can be anywhere from six to 20 people. They seem to be getting smaller and smaller, but they're really resource limited and so the decisions that are made are not really the same types of decisions that you would make in the States. 
And then just to finish it out, uh, from there, the patients will typically be evacuated out of theater unless their injuries are so minor that they can return to duty. They will be evacuated to a Roll 4 facility, which is, again, a fully staffed and resourced hospital that is outside the continental U.S. Uh, and for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, that's been at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany. Uh, and, and then from the Roll 4, they'll be evacuated to a Roll 5, which means a facility uh, back in the United States, typically one of the major military medical centers. Super. Great. Thanks so much, Matt. So that was your uh, quick primer on the roles of care on the battlefield. We thanks everybody to tuning in to case records of the Joint Trauma System so that lessons learned are not forgotten. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Colonel Jennifer Gurney. I'm a surgeon uh, in San Antonio at the Joint Trauma System and at the Burn Center. Thank you so much for showing up to case records of the Joint Trauma System. Again, please move forward. There's a lot of information, clinical information on the slide. We don't bite, we promise. We'll only pimp you if we know you, so you know we won't ask any questions. My uh, esteemed co-moderator is, uh, is uh, Colonel Marty Schreiber, surgeon at OHSU, and uh, we're going to moderate this session together. And uh, we have a total of 10 panel members and two cases to present. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, the discussions that we're going to have for the case records of the joint trauma system, uh, obviously they're not, these are real cases from the wars. Uh, they're not official or anything reflecting the Department of Defense. And while these are actual cases taken from the DODTR, almost all the photos um, are from the cases, but there are some that are representative because tactically we can't always get the photos uh, from the situations. So um, if I tried to introduce each one of our esteemed panel members, we spend the entire two hours uh, going through all the accomplishments of our panel members. Like I said, we have a total of, I think we have a total of nine panel members now. Dr. Yitzhak had to return to Israel. So if there's an IDF, uh, someone in the audience, you can come up and fill in for him on the second panel. Um, but on our first panel, we have uh, Dr. Mansur Khan from the UK, uh, UK military. We have Dr. Carlos Rodriguez from uh, Bethesda, Dr. Kurt Edwards from uh, San Antonio, Dr. Ray Fang, retired Colonel Ray Fang, who's now in Baltimore, and Colonel Craig Shriver. Uh, thanks to Colonel Shriver for filling in on short notice. Brian Eastridge was supposed to be on the panel, but it was stuck in Texas, and this is a joy for me. Colonel Shriver was my program director over 10 years ago, so now I get to be the one asking the questions. <laughs> um, uh, after them, we'll go ahead and move to the second panel. So these are actual cases uh, from theater that we have found, we thought were of great interest. Uh, you'll, you'll find that all of these cases, probably you may or may not agree with how the pages were managed, but the intention of this is that this is not an M&M. The goal of this is to use these cases to, as a way to learn from them. Uh, for people going to theater in the future, how are they going to take care of these? And what we'll do is we'll present portions of the case as we go through the cases, and we'll ask our panel of experts how would they manage at each point. And we're going to we'll be focusing some of this on, on surgical issues, but also we want to really talk about non-surgical issues, things like uh, resources, uh, ATLS issues, uh, who to transfer, when to transfer, uh, and how to manage these patients, really from a global effort, including uh, considering how many patients you're taking care of. Care what, is your, what are your resources uh, and other, uh, other issues that you need to consider when you take care of these patients. So we want you to respect that you know, these are real patients, so uh, we, we want to respect them. Uh, and uh, we want to uh, respect that the fact that the people that were taking care of these patients weren't necessarily under the best of conditions. Uh, so these are important factors as we go forward. 
And the purpose of the case records of the joint trauma systems is that so lessons learned are not forgotten, and for those lessons that we haven't learned, that we continue to learn them. So again, for people just coming in, if you guys could please move forward. There's a ton of clinical information on the slides, so everybody can get to see snapshots of the ABGs and everything else. Go ahead and please move forward. So in uh, in these cases, we're not going to be discussing any tactical or strategic information. We encourage audience participation. These are complex cases, and after the first case, we'll switch to our second set of expert panel members. And I just want to say, I don't know if I already said it, we have over 20 years of deployment experience on our panel, so we really are tapping into the true experts in the field. Uh, I don't know if you guys can hear that. Well, okay, so here is your first scenario, panel. Uh, you are uh, a surgeon at a busy World II hospital in our province of Afghanistan. Your FSC has been augmented with blood products to support ongoing operations. It's dirty and it's dusty and hot and busy. Casualties are frequently brought to you in multiple, uh, and they're always brought to you by helicopter because of the surrounding terrain. Uh, at your small role two forward surgical team, multiple casualty incidents are common. Here's actually a picture of where we are in the Kunar province, and uh, we're at a uh, forward operating base. And this is an example of your operating room. So this is a typical uh, Roll 2 facility uh, in a tent. This is the operating room area. It's one of three tents for this particular area. There's a, what they call an ATLS tent where the patients are initially cared for. After you travel from the ATLS court, uh, tent, you'd make a left, go into the operating room. You see here two, two beds, uh, two functional beds, but not necessarily uh, active because of the number of personnel that are available to man those beds. You can see that it's pretty basic in terms of equipment. Uh, but that's what you have, and that's uh, what you'll be dealing with as you think about these cases. And then outside of this, then you go take a left out of the operating room, and you end up in the ICU area, which is just another tent. So three tents, forward, just a forward surgical team. Uh, typically, this in this particular situation, there were 20 personnel involved uh, with the care of the patients in this, in this location. Okay, panel, here's your case. You're in Kunar Province, Afghanistan. The date is 15 September 2010. As uh, Dr. Schreiber mentioned, you're on a forward surgical team with two general surgeons and one CRNA, so you essentially have the capability of one bed. You have a fat, you can do a, a sonogram for a FAFS exam, ISAT, and plain films. You have 20 units of uh, blood, FFP, and cryo, and you have the capability and you've planned for the need for a walking blood bank. The situation is a foot patrol and a sniper attack. You will be receiving two casualties, one urgent surgical patient and one priority patient. Patients are being brought to you by helicopter. Uh, time of injury uh, is, you don't, we don't have that documented. These are two soldiers, 23 and 24 years old, sniper fire while on foot patrol. It's a very short spin-up to go from the medevac station to pick these casualties up, and then the flight time to your forward operating base is eight minutes. So they're approximately 20 minutes from uh, time of injury. Uh, the patients are both stable on medevac flight. They arrive at 1311. Patient number one has a gunshot wound to the left lower back below the body armor. Uh, there's a right chest wound, which is the uh, medics say is possibly a second gunshot wound versus an exit wound. Uh, he's GCS of 15, somewhat lethargic, and he says he cannot, and on his exam, he cannot move his legs. Patient number two is a gunshot wound to the right thigh. There's a large amount of bleeding at the scene. A tourniquet is in place and the bleeding is controlled. It's a GCS of 15 and he's screaming in pain. Okay, Mansoor, uh, you're up first. Uh, you have these two patients as you see. 
they're coming to you at the same time. And uh, as you hear, uh, these are the pertinent information in terms of IVs, uh, airway information, Glasgow Coma Score. You see the vital signs of the two patients there. The wounds are pretty much as described. The first patient has peritoneal signs and decreased rectal tone and a positive fast and is, is, is in, indeed a paraplegic, not moving lower extremities at all. The second patient has two peripheral IVs, also has an intact uh, uh, airway with a normal GCS. You see he has relatively normal vital signs. The wound is as described. Uh, his, uh, he does not have a pulse below his tourniquet. Uh, otherwise, his workup is fairly negative. He is moving his lower extremity. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Stryker. But uh, I saw two surgeons and one CRNA, so we're, we are, we're talking about a half FST. Yeah, we're half FST. We have capability of one OR bed. Yep. So, uh, Mansour, what are you going to do with these two patients? How are you going to triage them? What are you going to do with these guys? So I think the most important... Oh, sorry, I'll talk. Okay. So I think the most important thing was said when you initially did the first description, when you had the two patients coming in. The first patient with the GSW to the left uh, lower back, as well as the paraplegia and the chest wound. I think the key sign here is the patient was lethargic. Now, although the GCS is 15, lethargy in this situation is actually a sign of end-organ hypoperfusion, that being the brain. So although the GCS is 15, I'm worried about this patient given the actual injuries. The other patient is shouting. I'm talking the microphone. Sorry, I can't project that one, can I? Everyone understand me? No subtitles. Excellent. <laughs> so I was saying that the first patient is lethargic, which is a very, very important sign. The second patient is actually shouting and screaming, so you know they're mentating well, and it is actually a limb injury, whereas the first patient, given all the signs, you're talking about a non-compressible potential hemorrhage. So the lethargy, I think, is a key thing. So the first priority, I think, would be patient one, followed by patient two. Dr. Rodriguez? Uh, I agree. Um, I think you can, I think a tourniquet, on uh, patient two, or I should say that patients can tolerate tourniquets for about 15 minutes without having to, uh, having to deal with excruciating amounts of pain. They have to control the, uh, the uh, pain in patient two. And patient one is the priority here. He's got peritoneal signs. He's cold. And the first set of vitals, um, he had a little bit lower heart rate and a little bit higher blood pressure. Um, he would, uh, I would begin uh, transfusion with him as I take him to the operating room. So, Carlos, uh, let's get a little more uh, specific here. What are you going to do? So you want to take patient number one to the operating room. So you're going to start resuscitating. You're going to take the operating What are you going to do with patient number two in the meantime? Okay. Uh, patient number two. Um, while it doesn't take three people to get a patient to the operating room physically, I would still go to get a chest X-ray first. Uh, pelvis x-ray, uh, those don't take much time. But in the meantime, I'd go over to patient two and uh, take down the tourniquet and uh, have a pneumatic tourniquet above it, above the combat tourniquet in case this is an arterial injury and he starts bleeding profusely uh, for me, but I need to evaluate the, uh, the extremity. I've got time for that, that, uh, that leg. I've got a lot of time. If I need to, I can intubate him uh, for, for pain control. But I've got somebody that's, uh, that, as Mansour was saying, has got in, or obvious end organ issues. He needs to be in the operating room. Kirk, you agree with uh, taking down the tourniquet on patient number two while you're preparing to take patient number one to the operating room? Uh, so it's very important for me for any tourniquet place to make sure it's on a venous tourniquet. So the first thing I do for any tourniquet is to, and everybody at the FSP should uh, be aware of that, is to see if there's a pulse. If there's a pulse present, uh, the tourniquet is not effective and uh, needs to be taken down. So if there's no pulse, the movement to take off the tourniquet is not 
but it is very critical. And I don't think it's been published as much, but ineffective tourniquets of venous tourniquets have a significant complication. And so it is mandatory for anybody who comes into when I'm at a half FST at this place to check the pulse of the patient with the tourniquet on any extremities. And this guy has no pulse. All right, so it's an effective tourniquet. At that point in time, uh, they, I do not like to take down tourniquets because they are at, actually doing their job. If it's if it's necessary, though, he could be he could have a venous injury that has been stopped by the tourniquet um, that the vein the vein is clotted off, and now you've got a ischemic leg, which you, and you didn't have an arterial injury in the first place. Dr. Fang, what do you think? And also, you have this one OR capability. The medevac is still spinning on the ground. So yeah, I wanted more information. Because, of course uh, again, you did. Of course you did. Because well, uh, so for people in the audience who haven't deployed, uh, roll two is not definitive care. We are a stop the bleed, stop life-threatening hemorrhage. Uh, it's like the the dock in the box on the side of the road. But rather than treating your flu or your cold, we're here to stop life-saving bleeding or life-threatening uh, bleeding. So uh, if they have life-threatening bleeding, we're going to take care of it. Uh, but if they have things that don't need immediate attention, then sometimes they're better off going to the next level of care. So I want to know what my evac time is to my Rule 3, what resources there are uh, at my Rule 3 before I embark upon operating on one patient and become occupied and the other patient is still waiting for care. Those are great questions. And panelists, if you guys could all remember to speak in the microphone, this is being recorded, so we need uh, you to uh, speak in the microphone. So, um, so Dr. Fang, you, you have an FST, so you're up north in the Kunar province. You have another FST. 25 minutes away with the exact same capabilities you do in your combat support hospital or your role three which as you mentioned is the highest capability on the battlefield is a 60-minute flight so that so you can see uh, your capabilities listed there patient one who we've already talked about the lethargic patient base deficit of negative seven INR 1.7 patient two uh, you can see his ABG base deficit of negative two Colonel Shriver sir what do you think I agree with taking patient one to the OR. Uh, I would make sure patient two doesn't have any other injury that's not accounted for with the tourniquet control, and I would evacuate that patient to the roll three. With or without the tourniquet? With and on. Okay. So who would, of the panelists, who would evacuate? So would everybody evacuate patient two and focus on patient one? And who would evacuate with the tourniquet on and who would take the tourniquet down? Yeah, I, I think it needs to be evacuated. Um, but I think you need to evaluate the tourniquet or the need for it. We see it not infrequently where patients arrive to the hospital or, or to the, to the uh, FST with tourniquets in place that don't need to be there. I think that uh, we have no idea how it may be 25 minutes, but something could happen en route. We have no idea that the patient is actually going to make it in the 25-minute period of time. And we all know that 25 minutes really is more like an hour, an hour and a half. Bottom line, though, is that if, there's, if the tourniquet is not necessary to begin with, it should come down. And I think that we have the ability to, to, to tell that in our, in our FST. And if he starts bleeding arterially, you just put the tourniquet back up. So it's, uh, I want to make another comment. Is Again, in civilian practice, we're seeing more and more tourniquets. It's really something that has become uh, populated among civilian EMS. I see many patients with tourniquets on that we would... Uh, kind of say, why is this on? Because we take it down at his venous. But I'll have you remember that the people out pre-hospital, they have other concerns. They can't really sit there holding pressure on a wound. So sometimes a tourniquet is not necessarily placed because it is medically needed for arterial bleeding, but it's needed because you can't drive the ambulance and hold pressure at the same time. That's, abs so. that's absolutely right. And uh, I'm not faulting the pre-hospital yeah. folks by any means. It's just we weren't there in the field. We didn't see what they saw. Um, it's very possible there's a huge, a huge hematoma. You take the tourniquet down and it gets bigger on you. You just put the 
the tourniquet back up. I really so, think so, it's... So I'm agreeing with you that we now, have, if we can control it, we should assess whether that tourniquet was truly needed for arterial bleeding. If not, potentially that wound could be managed by other means that don't cause secondary ischemic injury. Um, but then I would also have the idea of not sending this patient necessarily to the roll three, which is an hour away, but I might make a lateral over to my other roll two if it's truly 25 minutes away with the same capability because I might get them to an OR bed more quickly. So... As far as that goes, I, I would not move the, this patient to roll two because air evacuation assets and the risk of movement uh, are a little bit high. So I never, I try never to move somebody to another roll two because there's always that threat and that complication uh, during movement. Uh, moving a helicopter in theater is a very intensive effort uh, and puts people at risk. Uh, second, I do want to put, thank you for, I'm going to put this out there on tourniquets, uh, ubiquitous nature, stop the bleed. Uh, tourniquets, when I came into the military a long time ago, um, when I took my expert field medical badge, said never put a tourniquet on, it'll kill people. Um, that was over 23 years ago that uh, that statement was out there. And yet in Vietnam, there were life-saving improvements being replaced everywhere. One of the things that happened during that interwar peace period is that tourniquets were applied and not applied successfully or appropriately and caused that Venus situation I had people lose compartments because they put on a venous tourniquet. I think that as we move forward and stop the bleed campaign, which I'm a huge supporter of, you need to understand that a tourniquet inappropriately placed is more dangerous in some cases than a tourniquet that's properly placed. A properly placed tourniquet, absolutely. If you stop arterial blood flow, and um, then you don't have the problem of building compartment syndrome and tolerate six hours. And they are painful when they're applied pro properly. I would also like to mention on tourniquets and application. I see some of the PAs that I worked and helped train. If you're putting on an upper thigh of an active duty soldier, the amount of force that you have to do to stop blood flow, blood flow is significant. It is not a simple twist of our current combat action tourniquet. It takes a great deal of pulling and force in order to stop that blood flow. But that's just uh, my pitch on tourniquets. Thanks. Kirby. I see you're sitting next to a microphone. How advantageous for us. Should patient number two go to uh, be uh, evacuated with or without the tourniquet? And if those of you guys in the back can please move forward so you can see the slides. Don't worry if you have to escape. There's a door up here. So please move forward so you can see the clinical slides. He's next to a microphone, but maybe a microphone that doesn't work. Strategic. Really? Tell us, Kirby. Just do it. Just yell at us. You can yell at us. Yeah. Kirby. There we go. Uh, per the TCCC guidelines, the uh, limbs should be assessed for the necessity for application of a tourniquet. And uh, if I confirm that indeed it was uh, arterial bleeding, I would then uh, leave the tourniquet in place and perhaps even have an additional, additional tourniquet uh, uh, pre-positioned to ensure no dislodgement en route. But I agree completely that a patient should not go to roll two and uh, the uh, going to a roll three would be the place which, because the additional resources for uh, uh, even placing a shunt and uh, maybe more than, the, than you'd like to get involved with it, another roll two. 
Thank, Thank you. you, sir. Okay, so patient two, uh, what they did do is they transferred them with a tourniquet in place to the other FST, the lateral FST. Uh, on evaluation there, they took them to the operating room. There was no vascular injury, no fracture, soft tissue injury only. Say that again? I'm sorry. Um, so patient two was uh, transferred with the tourniquet in oh, place. Oh, with the tourniquet, okay. Good. Yes, with the tourniquet in place to the lateral FST 25 minutes away and taken to the operating room there and did fine. Now patient one is still with you in the FST. Because of the right-sided chest wound, a chest tube was placed with no output. An L-spine film showed an L3 burst fracture. Uh, he got some antibiotics. He was hypotensive and tachycardic, got four and four of PRVCs and FFP in the trauma bay, and he was only a transient responder to that. His time in ATLS was 64 minutes. You have a choice, uh, Dr. Shriver, you're going to operate on the patient at your roll two or transfer him to the roll three? Uh, operate. And Dr. Fang? Operate. Edwards? Operate. Rodriguez? Operate. And Khan? Concur. Okay, that was easy. We concurred. Okay, great. So, uh, findings on laparotomy. Uh, large right liver laceration. Uh, patient had a 40% circ uh, circumference prepyloric gastric laceration. A non-expanding right retroperitoneal hematoma. So you can see that's not really projecting very well on the screen for... It's projecting on their screen, not on that. So you can see on the left uh, is the gallbladder. The head is to the, the, uh, to the left corner. Um, bullet track through the body of the pancreas. You can see that there. Uh, and no evidence of duodenal injury. So... Dr. Mansour, tell us about your operation on this patient. So this was only a zone two injury, uh, no zone one evidence? Yes. Okay, so providing there is a non-expanding retroperitoneal hematoma and given these findings. Right over the vena cava. Right, right over the vena cava, so yeah. Oh, that. Zone one. <laughs> Sorry, it was zone one. That's what I was going to Yeah. So one of the things you have to note when you have penetrating trauma to zone one, because it's a low pressure venous system, even though the hematoma may not be expanding, you cannot actually exclude a venous injury. You have to explore. Some of these patients turn up and they're absolutely sat upright speaking to you, but when you operate on them, you actually notice a gigantic laceration sometimes in the IVC. So if there is a hematoma in there, you ideally explore, but you've only told me I have 20 units of blood products. Yes, that's correct. And you can see on the screen you have your three major injuries, and you also the arrows represent the tract of the bullet. And you have whole blood donors potentially available. Is the hematoma expanding? Non-expanding. Then given our location, given our resources, and given the potential for multiple casualties to come in, I would do a temporary abdominal closure and get this person to a roll three as soon as I possibly could because it may be within five, ten minutes you may have used up that whole 20 units of blood products. Carlos. Uh, it's a tough problem. Um, you gotta That's why we brought you on this panel at very high expense. <laughs> so uh, individually, um, these injuries are very easily, well, not easily, but they're, they're very addressable. Um, I think the first thing we have to do is get control of our hemorrhage because uh, we're a transient responder, so obviously we're bleeding somewhere. Is the liver laceration looking like that? No evidence of active bleed from the liver? If, if you pack the liver, it stops bleeding. Okay, am I, and I'm still hypotensive? 
it, your, uh, trans, you stop the blood products and the blood pressure drops. Yeah, we've got evidence of ongoing bleeding. Um, I've done my, my full, my full uh, uh, evaluation of the abdomen or exploration of the abdomen, and all I see is a retroperitoneal hematoma, then I have to open the retroperitoneal hematoma. No, you see lots of stuff. Well, I mean, I see, I see the stomach and I see the, uh, yeah. I see the pancreas, but if I'm not actively bleeding from there and I'm only a transient responder, then that, that's an indication to me that I'm still actively bleeding. So you're going to open up the hematoma. I am. Kurt? Um, so much like uh, has been described in uh, other books like Top Knight, um, the, I, I'm going to, to answer your question, I've been doing that. I'm going to open the hematoma, but before I do it, because it's a low-pressure system, I can make sure that I have the whole team ready. And the whole blood situation that people talk about on the walking blood bank is not something that happens immediately. This is a, a zone one injury with a transient hyper, uh, responder. You're going to need mass amount of blood. There are no platelets, and that's been the benefit when you're starting to put there. So before I would ever open that hematoma, I would make sure that the administrative or the battalion A station of staff are saying, I need, I need to have the walking blood bank, and I need to know that I have blood here and now before I ever open that hematoma. If that system's not in place, I would uh, completely think about it. But I think in a low-pressure system, sponge stick, you should be able to control the bleeding until you get into a mess. Based on the trajectory of this bullet, or the, where the injury patterns are, this is going to be a lower IVC injury. Right, it's not going to be up high. It's not going to be up high by the liver. So I think that there's going to be blood loss, but I think it's you can temporize it pretty quickly with a finger or well placed. So, so Kurt, I want to I want to clarify your statement. Are you saying that you wouldn't open the hematoma until blood from the whole whole blood donors is in your hands? Until I know that the, I would uh, open the hematoma after I have with, with the hypotension, I don't think you can transport patients 16 minutes, so I would open it either way. But the issue is, is that I would say that I would get control. Uh, the superior IBC and saying, I would not open the hematoma, but be ready to do that when the people who are doing the walking blood bank, which is not a half FSP, tell me we have activated it. We are getting people here, we have a type uh, of blood for him, then I would go ahead and dive into that. Right. So this injury pattern. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, we're in a tent in the middle of an austere environment. This would tax most level one trauma centers and major trauma centers throughout the world. And this is not going to be a quick fix. Although you can get control of the bleeding, veins just ooze and they just bleed regardless of what control you have. You're probably talking a minimum of 20 to 30 units of blood going into this patient. And I totally agree with the Colonel that you do, if you had the facilities, activate a walking blood bank. Now I've activated walking whole blood in an austere environment in a tent and it takes on best about 45 minutes to get somebody in, get the blood ready and have a unit ready for that patient. So it takes up a lot of resources. So in this environment, with this patient bleeding, you're probably lucky to get maybe two to three units. And that's a drop in the ocean, I believe, in the grand scheme of things. So you have to weigh up. Do you want to risk transferring this patient? And there is a probability that the patient may die. But if the patient is tanking in front of you, you have to make the call. And that's where the deployed senior medical executive comes in. And you say, this patient will use up all our resources. How much blood can I use? Wait, wait. Who is the deployed senior medical executive? <laughs> who is that person? I'm sure that's you. <laughs> you don't have it? <laughs> oh, 
I thought you had somebody on telecom. That's what I was told. That's what I was told on a US Navy Reserve exercise last week. You had an SME. They're making stuff up. It's the reserve. Oh, if I'm the SME, then I would limit myself to a certain number of blood products, and if I couldn't achieve it by then, then you'd have to. Hey, so Ray, what are you going to do? So this is your so, patient. What are you so gonna a do? couple other things. One, uh, in our early resuscitation, we would have wanted to do one-to-one, -one, and we perhaps used TXA, although this case was before the era of TXA. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's one thing. We want to make sure we have a good balanced resuscitation to begin with. Uh, again, we did not have platelets early in the war. Sometimes we'd use factor seven as a surrogate for platelets, so you might use that other uh, pharmaceutical adjuncts if you had that available at that time, but now we would probably get whole blood. Another consideration is when you're calling to the roll three for evac of this patient. I've seen it where we've sent blood from the roll three to the roll two that they deliver it and then they can anticipate perhaps bringing the patient back, but they can be your blood resupply. We've done that a couple times when I was in Bagram, or where we would send supplies to the roll two. Uh, I mean, just for the audience, the liver injury can be treated with, you know, coag and packing. The pancreas injury would be temporized by, you know, if it was distal, you would resect it or you would just drain the heck out of it. You wouldn't really do much more, but really you need to stop the bleeding uh, and the continuous resuscitation before you can transfer this patient to roll three. So I think you got to open it up. If if you are constantly transfusing this patient, you need to get him to the point where he does not need constant transfusion. Dr. Shriver? Well, this patient has two-thirds of the lethal triad. I would have packed the entire abdomen. You can control the liver bleeding with, with packing. I'm concerned that everybody's assuming this is a cable injury, but his injury is in prepyloric stomach and body of the pancreas. The neck of the pancreas overlays the IVC. The body of the pancreas overlays the aorta. So I would get, have gotten supraceliac control of his aorta early uh, in the uh, lesser momentum, open that up. Get control of that, have a clamp around it or some type of uh, you know, vascular tape, um, and then stabilize everything. And that, if that involves putting that clamp on and packing the liver and holding pressure on the vena cava for the half an hour or 45 minutes it takes to get him out of hypotension and acidosis, because anything you do approaching that hematoma, at this point, he will die. So you've, you're there. He can't be transferred. You can't really address the situation quite yet. You've got to get control of your supraceliac aorta, pack the liver all to heck, hold the vena cava, and let everybody catch up, walking blood bank or whatever, getting them in a stable place, and then you're going to have to explore, mobilize everything and explore that hematoma. I just want to bring up one more option today would be, instead of that supersedia control by dissecting out the order, you might just put a Reboa catheter up and you've done that before. Already, though, so. We knew Reboa was, you're always three degrees from Reboa, right? So we knew Reboa was going to come up. So, um, so in the operating room, the forward surgical team for the uh, liver laceration, they sutured it. For the 40% uh, circumference prepyloric gastric laceration, temporarily closed it with a running vicral suture. They explored the hematoma, massive hemorrhage from the IVC, uh, two centimeters anterior and posterior injuries between the bifurcation uh, and the renal vein. So, Matt, sir, here you are. What are you going to do? Tied off. Ligated? Ligated. There's still a kidney on the other side, uh, which will perfuse, but you're dealing with a catastrophic hemorrhage here. It's no time to play. Tie it off. You can reconstruct it later. Carlos. Uh, you have two choices. One is to tie it off. The other one is to try to put a shunt of sorts in, whether it's a chest tube. Uh, I would probably tie it off. Okay. Kurt. Uh, I would tie it off. Being a system, low pressure, shunting, it's not very successful. Ray. 
I mean, I, I think I would uh, ultimately tie it off as your bailout, but if you could shunt it, it's probably better in the long term for the patient. Uh, tie it off. We do that in oncology all the time. Can, can I just assume that, so how, how much of the... Uh, the combat IBC oncologist. Injured, how much of the IBC is injured? Two centimeter. There's a two centimeter defect. So I, if I get hemostasis with, with almost occluding the head, the tear before and have this successful, you can almost occlude a great deal of the IVC if you can close it and still be okay because it'll collateralize in the process. So doing an actual transection tie-off, but I would just close that. If I get hemostasis closing that laceration, which isn't completely transected, I would do that. So our five experts all want to tie off. Anybody in the audience want to put a chest tube in there as a shunt and control the bleeding? Okay. A couple takers for that. All right. Tying off, tying off the IVC, I, I, um, I've done it once or twice. It's a pretty morbid thing, but um, you, you saved a life in this case, I think. I agree. I mean, tying it off is morbid, but what's more morbid than morbid is death, really, isn't it? So you're trying to save a life. Uh, I'd accept morbidity because you have to be alive to have morbidity. Okay, so uh, what they did for the IVC injury, they placed a 17 French Javid shunt in the IVC injury. So a, a pretty small, a sub-centimeter shunt. Uh, and then in terms of the other injuries, they JP drains by the pancreatic and gastric injuries. They packed the abdomen with the temporary closure. They noticed that there was blood tinge urine, uh, concern for a ureter injury. The entire OR time at the forward surgical team was about five hours. The patient received a total of 12 units of PRBCs, 17 units of cryo, 16 of FFP, and nine units of whole blood. Uh, patient transferred to the combat support hospital, the role three hospital, highest level of care on the battlefield. Uh, great documentation which I appreciated since I was pulling this from the records, and the time at the FST was nine hours and 15 minutes. So timing of combat support hospital. Dr. Shriver, do you have any comments on uh, when we should be trying to get patients out of the role to Fort Surgical Team? So let me, let me just uh, augment that question a little bit. So you, you've, you're in the operating room. You've, you think you've controlled all surgical bleeding. There's probably oozing from various areas. The patient may still be labile with respect to vital signs. The question is here is when do you put that patient in the helicopter for the trip to the combat support hospital? Now the patient has to be stable, and you have to trust that they're going to be able to get there, uh, you know, in a condition that's acceptable. So, and then, I mean, that's the answer. I don't know if they still have oozing or if you feel you're not comfortable with the packing and that there's still ongoing bleeding. That's a different issue. But if you feel you've addressed everything and it's, quote, medical oozing, then you need to correct that medically. Um, but in the meantime, you should transfer them as soon as weather allows because that may close quickly. Kurt? So I think one of the important points that I want to bring up about this transfer is that what are you transferring it to? I've been in these situations where the person's a specialist who comes in there to take this very sick patient. And so in the transport, you know, having your ICU nurse or yourself or somebody attended, or as currently in my last deployment, there are the advanced uh, transport teams that are out there. That's really critical. You do this great job at a, a role two, saving somebody, and you turn it over to a specialist. Uh, you can run into some real problems. And uh, and then making sure they're packed up, as somebody mentioned about blood, don't, don't leave them out there hanging. Uh, make sure that they're fully stocked to make that trip. 60 minutes is a long time for anybody in a small helicopter. And so I do want to highlight that, that 
you know, you high-five yourself after the OR, but you need to know who's transporting that patient that 60 minutes. So I want to make a clarification for what uh, Colonel Edwards said. When you say specialist, you mean like an E4, not a critical care specialist. <laughs> I, I've turned patients over to like a 21-year-old who was a paramedic, and he looked at me as I had this patient with the open abdomen, and this was like... So, so it is a significant... Uh, so this was an issue just for the audience to know where early in the war the inter-facility transports were often done by uh, EMT paramedic basic level providers uh, or, or the sending rule two would send nurses or docs and then lose that asset to their core group. Um, again, recognizing this need, the Army, Air Force, etc. created tacket teams and others to try to provide more expertise. But even so, uh, having flown one helicopter transport there is very little you can do for that hour. Any other comments about timing of transfer? Uh, let me ask the panel and the, the audience. Um, you tie off the if this IBC had been tied off, you've got minimal blood flow return from the legs, but your arterial system is still supplying an awful lot of blood to the legs. Anybody can do any fasciotomies before you send him? Is that a yes? No, we didn't A couple discuss people that. in the audience. What about panel members? Dr. Khan? Yes. Dr. Edwards? Uh, if I uh, transected and completely tied off the IBC, I, I would do it. Uh, I would tell you that I have hesitancy at nine hours, the fasciotomy, but oh, you know, I, I, I would think about it, yes. Dr. Fang? I think this patient merits fasciotomies, yes. Dr. Schreiber? I come back to oncology. We don't do that in oncology when we ligate the, the cava. So I'm, I'm not sure what the outcomes are that you need to be doing that. It's not arterial. Uh, experience is N equals 2 for me, and both times uh, uh, the patient developed compartment syndrome. We were back in the operating room, albeit in a civilian setting, in a couple hours. But the difference, I think, between the oncology patient and the trauma patient is, is volume, of, the volume of transfusion. And that the only thing is your whole body will swell. Uh, in the in the uh, in the trauma patient where you may not see that's a good point you can't go wrong doing it also with the oncology patient the patient's not in a total state of shock this person has got hypoperfusion global ischemic insult so when you actually tie off the IVC the muscle is more susceptible to the um, ischemic damage so I think that okay great all good points so the patient transfers to the combat support hospital arrives at 2321 uh, uh, temperature, the normal thermic, heart rate's 89, blood pressure 141 over 76, sat 100% on the vent. So what's the next move, uh, Monster? Uh, here you are, you know, this patient's just arrived, and you're, you know, it looks like they did a great job at the roll two. Look at those uh, numbers, pretty normal. Coagulopathy's corrected, not acidotic. Uh, we don't, uh, temperature is normal. So what do you do next? I start right back from the beginning, reassess the patient totally. Okay, then what? Take him to a CT scanner. If he's physiologically non-compromised, then take him back to the OR, have another look again. Does everyone on the panel agree that the patient should go to the CT scanner? Or would any of you take him directly to the operating room? We are warm. We're presumably, uh, uh, our coagulopathy is gone. Uh, we need to fully evaluate the rest of his injuries. I have no problem, as uh, Mansour said, uh, starting again with the ABCs. And I concur we should go to CATSCAN before okay. the operating room. But we're going any to the operating non, room. Any non-concurs? Any non-concurs? Okay. Everybody concurs. That is indeed what they did. Patient went to the CAT scan. The image that I don't have on this is one that shows the pancreatic injury. You'll hear more about that. But this is the CT scan. Sorry for those of you in the back. If you move forward, you can see the film. 
Dr. Shriver, you have any comments, sir, about the uh, CT scan? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously his vertebral body is blasted, but uh, don't forget he has a shunt in his cava, so something's going to have to be done about that at this location. A very small shot. Very shunt. small shot. Yeah, I think people can appreciate that. Okay. Uh, and then additional from the so CT scan of the head did not show any uh, injuries in the brain, neck, same thing. CT scan of the chest was all right. So you have the abdominal CT scan, which you can see here. This is the uh, lateral view. You can appreciate the L3 burst fracture. So now we have a paraplegic with a clear spine injury. Uh, so, Dr. Khan, are we going to address the spine in theater? Are you going to operate on this patient or are you going to send him to launch stool? So the key question here is, are you going to prevent the injury getting worse with stabilization? And that is ballistic injury to the spinal column with complete probable transection of the spinal cord. So um, given his degree burden of injury, I'd transfer him to long stool without any fixation done. But, but wait a minute, what about, you're gonna, are you going to take the operating room first or are you going to just transfer him? Sorry, I thought he had been to the operating room. No, he's only been in the operating room at the roll two. So you have oh, no, no, he would go, as I said beforehand, he'd have the initial assessment again, repeating of the ATLS paradigm, take to the CT scanner, then take him back to the OR to make sure you haven't missed any intra-abdominal injury. Carlos? Um, he needs to, after the CT scan, leave the spine alone, uh, go to the operating room and address the, uh, the shunt. I'm, I'm going to re-explore and make sure no injuries are missed, etc., but we have to address that shunt. Kurt? Uh, yeah, CT scan, OR. I think your uh, CPG about the spinal cord says you're not fixing that. <laughs> right. uh, so, but yes, Somebody's read the CPG. But that was not always followed. <laughs> yeah, as we all know. Sir, do you have a question? Could you use the mic? Well, it is below. He's paraplegic, and we don't know the trajectory that the bullet went through there. He could have. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Dr. Shriver. Uh, I agree with all this. He needs to go back, especially if you're worried about a pancreatic injury based on the scan we're not seeing. Yes. Okay. Uh, very good. So uh, he does get re-exploration of his abdomen and the findings on exploration. He has an IVC shunt with thrombosis. Uh, not surprising given the size of the shunt. His right ureter doesn't demonstrate any injury. The liver is hemostatic after the operation at the roll two and the resuscitation. The suture line that they placed at the uh, pylorus, the, the whip stitch that they placed at the pylorus was intact. They found a single centimeter enterotomy and a hematoma in the cecum. So, uh, Dr. Khan, can you just go through one by one? Or if you want, we can just talk about the IVC, we can talk about them separately, but how we need to address each one of these injuries. So the IVC... <laughs> Don, I thought you gave me the I know, answer. I know, I almost oh, did. I, I really got so did. excited. <laughs> Anybody remember what it said? Um, so basically what they have done is uh, use a shunt to tie it off because a thin shunt with low flow is going to clot off. You need it short and stubby. Um, to make it work so I would actually have a look at that and given the fact that the patient is now hemodynamically non-compromised may be worthwhile with the resources there to see what you can do to fix that. Uh, with the notion that the IVC will clot off. Regardless of what intervention you do here, there will be a thrombus in the IVC, but later on it will hopefully recannulate. The right ureter without injury, we'll leave that alone. The liver's hemostatic, nothing requires to be done there, or you can actually just put a bit of momentum, 
into the defect, um, like in a mental, just a big patch. Stomach suture line at pylorus, nothing requires to be done at that. This uh, a minute on that one. Uh, so remember, they whip-stitched it. So the intention oh, when, they, Sorry. When, they, when they closed that wound at the roll two, the intention was just to control the then, entire contents, and they were not careful about how they sewed it. Then that would have to be opened up and properly repaired. Obviously, sort out the enterotomy with repair, and the hematoma in the cecum, that is not a good sign. I mean, these things, um, especially around the cecum, given it's a very thin wall structure, requires a proper look at. Mind you, it's nine hours down the line and the cecum is very susceptible to ischemia very, very soon. So given this may be nine or ten hours down the line, it may be okay. So but, wait a minute now, on the enterotomy, what are you going to do with the enterotomy? It's a high-velocity missile. Yep. What are you going to do with that enterotomy? Two options. If it's, I mean, enterotomies come in a variety of shapes and sizes. You don't know if it was the exact bullet going through there because very unusual for a high-velocity bullet just to cause one enterotomy. You'd have to look at it. I mean, it can't actually judge without seeing it, but the safest thing to do at this thing, if it was any doubt, was bring it out as a stoma. Carlos, specifically the enterotomy and the hematoma and the cecum, what are you doing with those? Okay, um, have to take a look at the enterotomy. If it's a tiny little guy, it gets oversewn. If it's uh, involved, if it's, any, if it's destructive at all, it gets resected. Um, I don't know where it is in the bowel. I don't think I'd bring it up as a, as a stoma. Cecum, same thing. We're nine hours into this. If this is my last trip to the operating room, I may strongly consider resecting, but if I did that, I would probably probably bring up an ileostomy. Um, You've got to be safe with this guy. This guy. He still uh, has some other injuries too, which we haven't gotten to yet. Right, but say if this is our last trip to the operating room with him, um, I would really—I don't know if I would hook him back up. Um, and uh, the stomach. Uh, is only, we've only seen one hole in the stomach? Yeah. There was one hole, and it looks, in the operating room where you are at the roll three, it looks good. In the notes from the roll two, it says temporarily closed. Well, it is, that needs to be addressed. That needs to be formally closed, but there's nothing on the back wall of the no. stomach? No. So, so, Carlos, um, so, what, what are your thoughts about you know these, these high-velocity injuries have evolving uh, nature to them and what you see in the operating room at any given time? The next day you may see more surrounding dead tissue. So in the repair of the enterotomy, yeah, it looks like one centimeter now, but like uh, tomorrow you may have six centimeters of dead intestine. So how do you manage that? If I am at all concerned, if, I, if I'm at all concerned, I reset him tomorrow. Or I go back and look tomorrow. Okay, no, tomorrow. Take a second look. Kurt? I uh, completely agree that uh, high velocity is different than gunshot wounds you've seen. The issue is there's a pancreatic injury. If you can avoid uh, resection and anastomosis in that environment, that's the best thing to do with the patient. Relooking at the patient, absolutely. Leaving the bellies open and maybe having that problem is much better than having an anastomosis with the pancreatic liquid around it. So uh, I would explore the hematoma and make that decision there if I was unsure. And yes, I have seen exactly as you described larger areas of infarction, which is why I very rarely in these military settings close an abdomen. I do that to longshore rate do it all the time. Um, but I, I think in the face of a pancreatic injury, it's a thick, the least number of anastomosis that you can do is the best thing you can do. Right. 
So uh, the enterotomy that's being discussed, this is the one in the stomach then? No, there's a small bowel enterotomy. There's a small bowel. Because yeah. uh, one thing is whenever you see one, you're always curious where the other one is. Unless you think it's tangential, you usually want to have an even number of enterotomies where the bullets go through and through. So I would look around and make sure there wasn't another missed injury. And again, typically these patients will go back for serial exploration. So uh, I would try not to do too much resection of what was not grossly dead at this time. I would try to minimize contamination, but with the knowledge my colleagues would take him back you know, as soon as he got back to launch tool. And then, again, just for the people who uh, didn't experience this, uh, keep in mind that when you send a patient from the Roll 3 to Germany, you just have to account for the fact that they are going to be physically outside the hospital for more than 24 hours. So you're basically putting them in a moving van and saying 24 hours later you'll be at another hospital. You know, you need to be able to take care of yourself with the CCAT team for those 24 hours is just what they have with them. I think of it as a 24-hour CT scan trip. Basically, it's like taking a, person, a patient on a gurney to the CT scanner, but it takes 24 hours. So, Craig, any other? Uh, no, the sniper injury, the high velocity, they're going to, these, these will uh, evolve, these injuries, no question. It's important for the young doctors at, you know, Longstuhl and back at, in the States to recognize these weren't bad surgeries done up front. These injuries evolved over time and got worse, and now this looks worse not because of bad surgery but because of evolving injury. But we still haven't heard about this mythical pancreatic injury. We're getting there. We're getting there. So, Can I, I just so, want to add one, one more thing? It's not mythical. Can I just add one thing? Yes. About, this is about closing the abdomens. The beginning part of the war, you know, the National Capital Region, both Walter Reed and Bethesda, were seeing an awful lot of open abdomens that would come back, and that's because we were using an awful lot of crystalloid. As the war evolved and as our transfusion strategies changed, more and more abdomens were being closed uh, when they got to Germany because there was just very little edema. So don't be thinking that this abdomen can't be closed if you leave it open at the roll three. And I agree with uh, Kurt here and the rest of the panel. I think the belly probably should be left open. Okay, so what they did at the roll three is uh, they removed the shunt. They did an embolectomy. There was, as you would expect, a large amount of clot burden given the size of that shunt. And they repaired the IVC, the posterior wall, and then they did a softness vein patch to the anterior wall. Uh, the stomach suture line looked good on their ex intraoperative exam, so they left that alone. Mm -hmm. They repaired the enterotomy in two layers. And for the hematoma in the cecum, they invaginated that with Lembert sutures. So now uh, we have the near transection of the pancreas uh, that they see is to the right of the SMV, and they notice at the roll three that there's a saponification around the head of the pancreas, and they also notice a cirrhosal injury on the second part of the duodenum duct driver. We can start at the other end. Um, so we'll go ahead and talk about these two injuries, how you'd manage these. <laughs> Drain and use, you know, somatostatin analogs. Uh, you know, put drains in. Uh, you could ligate the proximal, you know, or the side near the head of the pancreas. Uh, drain the distal. Uh, tighten them up with somatostatin or some analog, and, and be, you, that's all you can do. I would not, you know, do anything else at this time. No, no not distal pancreatic resection. No distal pancreatic resection. You could do that if the patient's stable enough. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're quite stable now. No, if they're quite stable and you have a near, yeah, well, to the right of the SMV. The patient's right of the SMV? To your right of the SMV. To my right of the SMV. Yeah. Okay, well, then that's a distal pancreatectomy, so, yeah, that would be a, a very standard answer. You know, with and without the spleen. It's quicker to do it with <laughs> taking the spleen out, I mean, at this point. A splenic-preserving distal pancreas, especially when you're doing the whole thing, uh, that can be a bloody mess, even in an elective situation, so I just take the spleen. Ray? 
again, yeah, to the right, to the surgeon's right of the SMV, generally they will not have pancreatic insufficiency if you take, do that distal pancreatectomy, and I would just take the spleen. Uh, in this young adult, uh, the chances of having complications of post-pancreatectomy are not zero, but they're probably not, uh, not enough to prohibit me doing it. Kurt, I'm, I'm going to back up just because I see what you're saying here in the second one, and I, this saponification around the head of the pancreas. I mean, I'm worried there's also another injury in the head of the pancreas, and we'll get to that when we talk about whether you should be doing distal pancreatectomy in this situation or saving it for something that, an idea that will come up later when you're back in the States. If you do the distal pancreas here, it is gone. You can't do islet cell transplant, and we've done that in these trauma patients. So I, I would explore the head of the pancreas, make sure nothing is going on there. Yes, this patient will be fine if you do a distal pancreatectomy there. SMB. But if there's a head of the pancreas injury as well, and that has to come out later with a Whipple, uh, then you've really you've done the patient a disservice. By so looking at, looking at the head of the pancreas, you do not see any evidence of gross injury. Just looking at it from a certain standpoint, you're looking at the head of the pancreas, sitting around, duodenums around it, you do not see a gross injury. Yeah, and you might not. These things evolve over time, and we've seen that with pancreatic injuries in these types of patients. And so, again, you know... <laughs> Yeah, taking it out in a low volume, you know, transected pancreas, taking it out, but you have to be concerned that you're going to lose this entire pancreas due to the high-velocity missile going right through it, and the head's going to go next. And there's an option for a pancreatic transplant if you don't throw the pancreas away in a place that's not conus and can send them to an islet cell transplant. So what do you do? What do you want to do? Well, again, you know, uh, there's no penalty for just, you know, uh, suturing it up on the one side, putting drains in there like crazy. Your abdomen's open already. You'll full control of it, putting in octreotide or whatever, and sending them back to conus. Uh, you know, the pancreas is, as you're controlling the pancreatic leak, it'll be okay. Um, if I'm not sure that I can save the head of the pancreas and I'm taking out, you know, the rest of the body and the tail, uh, you'll leave me without a pancreas, and that'll be a very significant problem later on. So that's what I would do. Kurt? Uh, I just learned here I would have initially done the distal, but I really, <laughs> I'm really buying into the fact that you can drain these, and they do they do fine with open drain, and uh, realizing that the head might be injured and we don't have the ability to diagnose that properly out there, uh, I, I, I've been influenced. Carla, <laughs> take it out or leave it in and drain the hell out of it. Well, Colonel Shriver was my program director. He was a, he was not, well, we were, yeah, anyway. So I'm not going to argue with him. <laughs> Most however, of what you were taught in residency was wrong. However, what I was not taught, because of Colonel Shriver, so, but because that's the nature of residency. Yeah, actually, so, so actually my teaching and, and, and you know, when I see these types of injuries, um, they, get, they get a distal pank. That's just the way we do it. Um, uh, I, don't, uh, I do know of cases uh, with our wounded warriors that have had islet cell transplants, and they did fine. Uh, or did well after those. So uh, it's not in my tool, tool bag to, to think of. So I would have done a distal pank in this case. Not sure. And then I'm going to ask you as well, you're seeing saponification about the head of the pancreas, and here's this serosal injury on the second portion of the duodenum. Mm-hmm. It's right where that saponification is happening. What are you going to do about that? So first of all, distal pancreatectomy, yes or no? And what are you going to do about the serosal injury on the duodenum? So one-third of the panel I used to be the fellow for, so... Um... <laughs> I'm going to drain it. I'm going to drain that. I'm just going to leave it alone. Uh, the first rule that you get taught in trauma surgery is don't touch the pancreas. So I, I'm a very simple human. I'll stick to that rule, so I'll just drain it. And with the serosal injury on the second portion of the duodenum, well, there's a drain around there. Okay. All right, so they uh, evaluated the pancreatic duct. They did a cholecystotomy. 
and a cholangiopancreaticogram. They didn't see any significant evidence of ductal disruption. Then they uh, did the cholecystectomy, and they drained around the area. And in terms of the cirrhosal uh, injury, they put a JP drain and then a temporary abdominal closure. So now just um, looking at the, all the procedures, that all the injuries and all the procedures that were performed at the roll three um, from the panel or from anybody in the audience, uh, is there any comments uh, about things that you would have done differently, absolutely done differently or absolutely would have done the way that it was done? I would have tied off the IVC at the roll two. I think that the roll two, uh, he spent an awful lot of time in the operating room. Okay. And then uh, the other thing is, is I've heard, and I'll defer to Dr. Schreiber, sometimes it's nice to leave the gallbladder in if it's not injured because it can uh, provide a conduit for uh, reconstruction. So um, I learned a phrase in the States not to be a Monday morning quarterback, and it's, I actually do stick by it. You, we weren't there. We don't know what happened, but ideally the only thing I would have probably changed was the IVC injury and reopened the gastrotomy uh, around the pylorus and probably not... It depends what the single one centimeter enterotomy was, but as mentioned, if this was due to a tangential ballistic injury, probably resected that, and then plus or minus leaving free ends or bringing out a stoma, but I would not have joined it up in the presence of such a large pancreatic injury. Any other comments from the panel about something they would have done the same or different? I'm just to say, they never did a distal pain or... They did not. Lee Cancio, you're sitting here in the front. What do you think about all this? One of the most senior uh, trauma surgeons? I think. Could you uh, please use a microphone? <laughs> We're taping this. That's why we need the microphones. Keep it. Yes, keep it clean, Dr. Cancio, please. <laughs> Just going back, my main uh, uh, comment is that there was entirely too much time spent in the operating room at roll two, and too much time on the ground at roll two. So whatever, uh, without knowing the exact reason for. Uh, that prolonged operation. Uh, I think that's the key point uh, because uh, if, if it was necessary to tie off the IVC at roll two in order to speed up that operation, that could have been a critical uh, point. Okay, so in terms of timing then, since we're talking of timing, what about the timing of launch tool transfer? So now you're at the roll three with this patient, and you have all the capabilities, almost the same capability level as launch tool, just the casualty volume is different. When are you going to send this patient to launch soul? Uh, we'll start with Carlos. Yeah, he's, he's warm. He's no longer acidotic. He's making blood clots. We have drained everything widely. Um, he's ready to fly. So yeah, are you going to do the emergent transfer? Are they going to come in four hours, or are you going to wait till the next convenient time? Not the next convenient time. He needs to. I think he needs to have definitive uh, reconstruction done of his pancreas. Uh, it sounds like everything else is repaired to, 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 to uh, definitively, so he needs to have that pancreas addressed, and that's not something that I can do. Kurt? Uh, yeah, I'd call a CCAT in this way. Uh, I call him in immediately. The IVC's tied off. We know about collaterals, trying to worry about that. I would uh, call him in, say they need to take this active soldier and get him out of here. Ray, you agree? Should this be an emergent uh, as soon as possible? So um, it depends on where you are in the AE cycle. Again, uh, at that time or many times we had three flights going out a, a, day, a week. 
so when is the next flight? Again, keep in mind when you call an urgent or priority flight, they're taking a plane out of its mission to resupply troops, bring forces to where they need to be. And so it's a big strain on the system. They're not just planes sitting around waiting to move patients. Um, but if the patient truly needs to go and it's going to be 48, 72 hours before the next scheduled flight, then you might call an urgent or priority. If it's just a day till the next scheduled flight and the patient's stable, you're continuing to resuscitate them and they're doing well, then, uh, then perhaps you could send them. I would say that if you have an undrained pancreatic injury that needs a bunch of work, then they probably should go sooner rather than later because they're just auto-digesting themselves. And I will tell you that many times at Larmsey, we did not have a lot of pancreatic hepatobiliary expertise. And so oftentimes we would then expedite their transfer to this gentleman to my left, and we would give them the heads up that this patient was coming. Um, because some of those things, you need to do them right the first time, and it's best to have someone who's done it hundreds of times uh, rather than just whoever is the next person in line. Dr. Shriver, Dr. Khan, do you guys have any additional comments? No, I agree with Colonel Fine. I just have one question for Ray since I have there up there. When I call for the urgent or emergent, do I get anything different than that AE that comes in? So, uh, you know, if you do the scheduled flights, you'll get the team that's on the, the next hook. Uh, if you call that emergency when they're going to pull a plane out of the inventory that may have been already set to do something else, and they will reroute it to move your patient because you have immense power saying that this patient needs to be moved. But you will get probably either the team that was up next anyway moving that patient. So I get the same CTAC uh, quality for the usual AE or the plant Yes, yes. Okay. Um, yes, sir, go ahead. Yeah, so I uh, just want to point out one thing on this. You're in a role three hospital uh, in a hostile environment. So what you want to do is you want to make sure the back door keeps clearing because you don't know what's going to come in through the door next. You need maximum free bed availability. And if you actually think about it, the clearing the back door is like an enema. If you do not clear it up, you get bunged up. Nothing's coming through the front end. Okay, so you need to keep okay. the back door clear, that's and that's where it goes. <laughs> okay, uh, so he arrived to a launch school post-op post -op injury day number one. So from roll two to roll three to launch school post-injury day one, he did require vasopressors in flight. So we're going to go through the rest of his course, and then we'll give the uh, audience and panel a, a time for questions. So his Lymsey course. Uh, Dr. Fang, you actually wrote this patient's discharge summary, so you uh, might remember him. Uh, he leaped from both a duodenal injury and the sequel repair. He required multiple pancreatic debridements. He leaked from the gastric repair and small bowel repair. He had multiple abdominal expirations, secondary to continued succus drainage from the injuries and repairs. His spine injury was not addressed, secondary to all these ongoing active issues. He was actually 14 days at launch school. Dr. Fang and myself were both at launch school during this time, which is a long time for a patient to stay in Germany. Um, and then he was transferred to Walter Reed. This patient arrived at uh, Walter Reed post-injury day 16. He had a four-month uh, complicated hospital course from 2010 to 2011. Uh, he had complete cauda equina syndrome, uh, multiple intracutaneous fistulas. He also had a failed abdominal wall reconstruction. He was transferred to the Tampa VA on 14 January 2011, and remember his date of injury was 10 September 2010. He had over 200 surgeries in his records from 2010 to 2013. The last operation I saw was he had a uh, flap placed over a sacral decubitus because he's uh, in a wheelchair. So now, uh, understanding that hindsight is much closer to 2020, 
and that everyone on this panel has a luxury of hindsight right now. Is there anything when we think about throughout this in, uh, patient's hospital course from point of injury uh, to the care of this very complicated patient that people would do differently or anybody want to bring up something from the audience? So remember, this is all about remembering lessons learned, but then I think we also need to be constantly asking ourselves, are there lessons that we still need to be learning? How proximal was the enterotomy? You know, I couldn't see that from the notes, so I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't get an idea of that from the notes that, we, that I had available. So the, the question really is, is, was there a critical event in the management of this patient that sort of decided this fate of months in the hospital, 200 operations, some critical event we could all learn from in this room so it doesn't happen again? So, so uh, I think it's been mentioned before. I never at a roll two try to have longer than four hours in the OR. I just think that we have terrible problems keeping people warm, even though they did a good job. And the amount, you know, looking at the procedures to do anastomosis, that would have leaked, there would have been problems if you would have tried to do something more aggressive up front, because this guy leaked from simple repairs. I think that that initial operation, um, and again, no fault, you might have had problems getting whole blood, might have had all sorts of problems out there. But if you're doing that long a surgery at a roll two in that kind of environment, I think it leads up to that. And I always try to never be longer than uh, two hours in the OR when I'm at a roll two. Go ahead, John. So uh, I, I think uh, the one thing that uh, the one pivotal event that changed this patient's course was the fact that uh, the uh, the injury to the duodenum was underestimated. So uh, when this patient was in launch stool, we um, we thought that have, if they had done a pyloric exclusion up front, uh, rather than simply uh, over-sewing or not, not treating that duodenal cirrhosal injury, I think that would have changed, potentially changed the course of the events. But he had a duodenal, duodenal leak, correct? He did. From this, yeah. Yeah. Dr. So, Shriver, what do you I think? think? Uh, I, I wouldn't treat something that's not there. So again, I, these injuries evolve. Uh, I, I think the the problem with this guy was he was shot by high velocity wound in, in his abdomen. I think the system behaved magnificently, honestly. I don't think there was something bad that happened that altered his course, and we're just sort of discussing details. Uh, but I wouldn't do a pyloric exclusion. Those were overrated anyway, honestly. Uh, you know, And so just drain the heck out of it. I didn't hear anything about, uh, again, I've said it three times, somatostatin analogs. I assume they'd shut down his pancreas along the way. Uh, but you can control almost anything that goes on leaking out of the pancreas and the duodenum with catheters, tubes, medications, and drains. Actually, Dr. Schreiber, he, didn't, he did get sabatostatin, uh, but it was until he was about a week into his course at Launch School when he got it. Yep. Any other uh, comments from the panel members? Okay, so we are going to move... Oh, yes, Dr. Laporta, please go ahead. Oh, well, we have a few people lined up. Anka? Um, so we know that trap air expands by 30% when you go up to 8,000 feet, which is the travel altitude. Um, for these patients, so do you think that maybe they wouldn't have leaked um, if you hadn't flown immediately after surgery? Dr. Fang? Um, I don't know. Usually they're decompressed pretty well, NGOG, etc. I mean, we've had patients with their bowel and discontinuity fly and never had a leak as far as I know from that. Um, I will say that I think Dr. Gurney at one point had a theory that perhaps there was some hypoperfusion at anastomoses due to altitude, and I think that was something that she wanted to study. I don't know what became of that. 
Um, <laughs> We're working together, actually. <laughs> so, but I mean, flying is not a benign thing. Uh, again, Dr. Gurney made fun of me that I'm the analogy person, but we don't fly people uh, in civilian practice after their OR because there are unforeseen consequences of it. We do it at a necessity in wartime, um, so it cannot be discounted the effects of flight. Thanks. Thanks for your question. Liz? Just a systems uh, suggestion. At the roll two, when you have two patients coming in with gunshot wounds and they're urgent surgical, uh, starting the walking blood bank process much sooner, having the battle drills, there should be no reason it takes 45 minutes to get you blood in the operating room. That roster needs to be activated, and they can just run to the scene at the time, assist, and then get the blood. Yeah, that's a great point, and we just presented last Thursday on the Joint Trauma System Combat Casualty Care Conference. Uh, one of the ships uh, was taking a bunch of casualties, and before the patients even arrived, they had drawn 70 units of whole blood before they even saw a single one of the patients. So you make a good point that you can start that pro, pro you know, be very proactive about it. Yeah. 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 Sir? Paul, did it take us 45 minutes? No, sir. So, uh, Major Arkhamplus, I'm a senior PA for U.S. Army Africa. I just want to say uh, that 45 minutes, if you have an, uh, a team that is not rehearsed in the whole blood procedure, absolutely it can take that long. But it's imperative for that FST to ensure that that role one that they're working with or role two has rehearsed the whole blood procedures. We were able to generate four units of whole blood every 15 minutes. Yep. Um, and so yeah, I think that's rehearse a, it, plan it, train that's it. A, Great comment for roll two. I, I agree with that. Deployed together, use the VA guy aid station as FSD at Farag and last casualty situation, and that guy uh, had rehearsed it time. He's not a slave driver to the rest of the people, but we had whole blood and we needed it immediately, and that's what you know. I always compliment the process that you did there. Last question, Dr. Laporte. So I should point out that I don't feel near as old looking at John Cho because he's got a little more hair now that he fluffed it up than when he was 25 or 30 years ago, my resident, But so I must not be that old. But the principles of what everybody talked about really, except for the blood principles, are virtually the same principles that we preached 30 years ago. The drain, 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 get out of trouble, get perfusion going, etc., etc. I'm also curious what, like I've got Captain Chefs right next to me here, what he thinks about if you're on a ship way out somewhere, what are you going to do different with that FST? I just did it. Yep. I appreciate the, uh, the reference to the Navy, and uh, I think Jen talked about the, the uh, uh, the accident that led to the whole blood transfusion on Bataan recently is the first since Vietnam. Um, and whole blood's your only shot. So there's two units of blood on all these ships. That's it. So uh, walking blood banks are part of a fleet surgical team. An FST means something different in the Navy these days than it does in the Army. That rides the amphibs, which are casually receiving ships in theory. But uh, since Vietnam, uh, not a lot of amphibious landings have taken place but that uh, that hasn't fallen by the wayside. So, uh, walking blood bank is the is really the key to to uh, getting those if there's a mass uh, casualty situation. That's the one specific thing. And then transport is very very challenging. Um, that would be the other thing. That's probably goes without saying. Thank you, sir. Okay, so we have a quick 
rapid fire round. So what this is for the panel members, you guys have 10 seconds or less to answer how you're going to manage these, and then we're going to switch panelists. Okay. Just a so, few words here. Okay. So first case, whole blood or balanced component therapy? Patients whole. exsanguinating. Whole blood. Concur. Whole blood. Anybody want? Oh, Ray's thinking about it. Well, I mean, by the CPG, you're only supposed to use whole blood if you are not getting adequate effect from components or you don't have all the components available. Which means that if you're in a roll two, you don't have platelets. There you go. Dr. Shriver? Whole blood. Yeah, both. Roll two. But, I mean, I think that but part of this was to see, I think surgeons who have used whole blood have a preference for whole blood even if you have all three components available. So, okay. Post-national patient, what does he do? Mansoor. Degreed. No, no, what, what is this what's patient's his, profession? What's his job? Oh, sorry. Um, bomb maker. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we got it. It's only one answer. <laughs> Colonel Shriver said it. He makes bombs. So when this patient comes into your FST, don't let him go without somebody questioning him. Okay. So, yeah, go ahead, sir. Young kid shows up in severe respiratory distress. What do you think? That's their ultrasound. That's an echo. What are you going to do? Craig. Okay. <laughs> I guess stick, uh, stick to a pericardial synthesis. Okay, right? Uh, I would say the same, but somehow I feel like that's not what I'm supposed to do. Uh, work the system to see about where we can transport this patient. Not touching it. Not touching it at the world, too. Respiratory distress, pulmonary edema, cardiogenic shock. Provide support and look for transport for a child at a world, too. They're going to be dead if you do that. You have to do something. <laughs> they won't take them. I mean, when I was there, they wouldn't take them at Bagram if it was, you know, the one, it wasn't an injury caused by our forces. So, so how, can you, how, can you, how can you drain this fluid? Carlos, what do you think? Like, what are your two options for draining this uh, With a needle or a, or a, or a window? But okay, which would you do? I would do a, <laughs> I'd do a needle. I'm not going to... Yeah, I mean, if you miss this one, then... Not sure? <laughs> needle pericardiosynthesis for this one. Any ideas of what the diagnosis is? No clue. Anybody in the audience have an idea about diagnosis? Oh, We're in Afghanistan, young child. Correct. Correct. Okay, very good. So the audience have already asked a question, so thank you. Let's give our first set of panel members a round of applause. We're going to go ahead and switch the second set of panel members. The next, uh, the next case is equally as tricky, if not more tricky. Yes, we thank you guys. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.